Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen. And that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello. Welcome back to the show. Yeah. Our second episode of the new year. Yeah. Back to the original format of our regular shows. Yeah. Coming in with a bang, like a bridge exploding. Hmm. <laughs> because this is the 30th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, The Bridge on the River Kwai. That is it. And a bridge explodes. <laughs> if you haven't seen this movie, I guess. It's like the whole point of the film. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that going into it. So yeah, I thought it was about them building a bridge. I mean, it also was about that. Yes. At the start of every episode, we talk about the Penny News. The News with Penny, a pup date. It's been a long time since uh, anyone has got the news about Penny. Yeah. Oh, man. What's going on in her world? Well, we're going to give a little backtrack uh, just so you know what was going on in her life. She went through the holidays <laughs> like many of us did. Yes, correct. And during the holidays, Penny likes to see one of her favorite men. <laughs> Whom you can learn all about in one of our previous Academy Archives, Santa Claus. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, every year Penny sees Santa. Yes. And um, I'm not, we are not the people that necessarily have started this tradition. My family has gone to see Santa Claus since I was a teeny tiny baby. And so they have pictures of us every year. But uh, now me and my sisters are full grown adults. And it is very weird. We did go see Santa as adults, even after Zach and I got married, we still saw Santa. Mm -hmm. But at this point, we've like way crossed that threshold. There's no way that it makes any sense for us to go see Santa anymore. So instead, we all go see Santa with dogs. Mm hmm. So Penny went with my sister's dog and my parents' dog to all go see Santa Claus. And she was crazy. Well, and this particular Santa Claus (laughs) sees dogs on a specific day. Yeah, it's like Monday night's dogs can come to the mall and see him and get their picture taken with him and they have it set up so it's like a little more dog friendly they have like treats instead of little like gimmicky toy things to give out and that kind of thing but we took Penny and she was just so overstimulated I mean walking through the mall with her was like she was like her eyes were bugging out of her head she didn't know what was going on and we get into the line to wait for Santa and of course it's like the Christmas tunnel that you walk through with like lights, like in a tunnel. And so she's just like looking around. She's like panting and her eyes are like bugging. I was like, are you going to have a heart attack? Please don't (laughs) have a heart attack. Well, and it's crazy to me because this mall is in regular indoor mall. Yeah. That just like happens to let all these dogs in one night. (laughs) And it's so weird to like walk through the mall with her because we also walk through with like my family's dogs. Yeah. They have big dogs. And so like we're just like walking through and we're passing like all these other crazy things. Yeah. And people with their own dogs going to see Santa. Yankee Candle. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Andy Ann's pretzels. Yeah. And we were in line in front of two really big huskies. They were beautiful. Little babies. They were like 
probably like eight months old, you know, mm. uh, but they were so gorgeous. And like, it's just so funny to like see all these animals that shouldn't be in the mall in the mall. Just waiting to see Santa, of course. Yeah. Well, she told him what she wanted for Christmas. Mm. And did she get that? I don't know. She didn't tell me. Oh, she was pretty spoiled for Christmas. Definitely. Definitely. Lots of treats. Yeah. I'm sure it's really fun for that Santa Claus, though, to have like all those dogs coming through. Yeah, I guess Santa would have to say that he like would approve of those <laughs> nights seeing a bunch of dogs. Yeah, they have to have the Santa on those nights that doesn't have any allergies. Yeah, right. I will say that the picture of Santa oh, with the dogs is a bit strange. It's very... He made some very strong choices. <laughs> He's doing like jazz hands and a wide open mouth and like a wink in some of them. It's very weird. And it's so funny because all the dogs are way overstimulated. So they're all looking like they're stunned. So all three dogs have wide eyes. Their mouths are wide. Their tons are like hanging out. And then Santa looks kind like of the one same. of the dogs. <laughs> Oh, so silly. Well, that is the news about Penny so far. Yeah. Oh, my. Good job, Penny. So before we get into it, uh, I will just give a recap of this film for yeah. those who have not seen. Colonel Nicholson leads his men into War Camp 16 in Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, where Colonel Saito, head of the Japanese troops in charge of the prisoner camp, is overseeing the building of the railroad and new bridge in the area. Nicholson is set on leading the men in making the best of their circumstances, not to escape, to build a good bridge, and to prove that the British soldiers are the best men in the world. The bridge spans the River Kwai, connecting Bangkok and Rangoon, and Nicholson makes a deal with Colonel Saito using the Geneva Code to appeal to his better senses. With new plans made by the British officers, they finish the bridge ahead of the deadline set by the Japanese government, keeping Saito from having to commit ritual suicide for failing his mission. Meanwhile, Shears has escaped the camp and made his way to Ceylon, where British Major Warden has him join a commando team to blow up the bridge being built by the British prisoners of war. On the day the bridge is finished, the train finally comes, and in a mad confusion in which Nicholson almost thwarts the plans of the commando team, the bridge is destroyed. Ta-da! Ta-da! I hadn't seen this movie before, but you had, right? Yeah. It's good. It's long. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's very long. Uh, and it, it, there's a lot of it that just doesn't need to be that long. Yeah. That was my main complaint about this one. I mean, I'm not partial to, like, war movies either. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is definitely not in my general taste. But I got to say, I love Alec Guinness. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's good. Yeah. And it kind of... It felt very modern. It did. I was really surprised. It at was definitely like part of a new wave of a way of telling these war stories in yeah. films. Mm-hmm. It's very enjoyable and it's a very well written script and the performances are great in it too. Like there was nothing about this film that took me out of it. Yeah. Um, even though it is older still, mm-hmm. like we aren't that far along. I mean, it's only 1957 that this came out. But what was interesting in watching it it felt years beyond from here to eternity. Oh, yeah, true. That is true. And that's not that far removed. No, only a couple years. Yeah, yeah. I so strides have been made. Yeah, definitely. Well, do you want to let us know what's going on this year with the ceremony? Yeah. So today we are talking about the 30th Academy Awards ceremony. Huzzah! Um, so, yeah, pretty exciting that we've made it three decades worth of ceremonies now. 
a pretty momentous occasion. And so there are quite a few changes that are made to the ceremony and the structure and everything that goes into it this year. Um, so I have quite a few things to share. Mm, good. Um, but this ceremony was held on March 26, 1958 at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And if you remember from our previous episodes, um, they've been doing the split ceremony between New York and Hollywood. This year is the first year since they started televising that they are only doing it from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I was wondering when that would end. Yeah. So there's no New York ceremony this year. Um this is the first time they do that since they started the television broadcast. Initially, the thought was if they were going to broadcast it live, they wanted everybody at the ceremony and people were splitting their times being by coastal doing theater and film. And they wanted to have as many famous faces there as possible. But it's just like become a hassle. It's getting more difficult. And they just decide to stick with just one location. Yeah, that makes sense. This is the first time that the entire ceremony is broadcast live. If you remember me talking about some of these previous broadcasts, they don't usually show all of the awards being given out. They show like the big ones, but the technical awards and some of the honorary awards were given just on location to the people that were there after the ceremony's broadcast had finished. But this year they broadcast the entire ceremony. They do like the full thing on television. Hmm, Nice. This ceremony is hosted by several people sharing the responsibilities. Bob Hope, Rosalind Russell, David Niven, Jimmy Stewart, Jack Lemon, and Donald Duck. Oh, boy. So many of them. Yes. And Donald Duck. <laughs> yes. So Donald Duck at this ceremony does a seven-minute video about the history of film. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Why would you, of all the characters to pick, of course, you pick the one who is the, the hardest to understand speaking in, like, duck voice. Yeah. So it is voiced by Clarence Nash at the time. Oh, boy. Uh, and so they make all the animation beforehand, and then they send the reel to play during the ceremony. Yikes. <laughs> so I want to find it. I wasn't able to find it quite yet. Mm. But if I do, I'll post it on the Instagram. Not the full seven minutes because I don't think anybody needs that. And that's a lot of just like listening to Donald talk. <laughs> this is the first year uh, since the ceremony has begun that the nominations and the winners were voted upon by Academy members only. Oh. In previous years, other distinguished individuals of the motion picture community had certain levels of privilege in voting oh um but they have officially made it membership only starting this year i don't know why i didn't realize that that was happening i didn't either and i haven't mentioned it because i kind of assumed that and then this is one of the things that like kind of marks the 30th year is that they make membership a requirement for voting um so you can't just be an actor or a director or a producer and vote you have to get your membership into the academy and then you can be a part of that, kind of like the SAG Awards are or anything right, else. Right. But I think before this, it was just kind of general. Like, you know, if you're a big person in the industry, whether or not you actually have membership, you could still vote for things. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. The other major adjustment that happens this year is the changing of the competitive categories. From the 29th to the 30th Academy Awards, they go from 30 categories down to just 24. Hmm. So the way that they do this is they start by eliminating some things that they don't need. They eliminated the category Best Documentary Short Subject. And then they started combining categories into one thing. So some of those categories are they combined best live action short subject one reel and two reel into one category. Well, that makes sense. Best live action (laughs) short subject. Yes. And this happens across the board for several things. Combining um, best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture with best scoring of a musical picture to one category, best scoring. 
um, combining best art direction in color and best art direction black and white into best art direction. All right. Same thing happens with cinematography. Black and white in color just becomes best cinematography. And the same thing with costume design. Black and white costume design, color costume design just becomes best costume design. Nice. The final thing that they do is they eliminate the category of best story. If you remember the complications (laughs) and the like explaining I've tried to do over the years about this category, they decide to get rid of it entirely. They come up with a kind of clunky solution. Yeah. So it's going to take some time. The new names for these categories for the next like decade or so are bad. Yeah. So now there are only two categories for screenwriting. The first being best story and screenplay written directly for the screen. So best screenplay as we know it today. Original. Yeah, best original screenplay. And then the second option is best screenplay based on material from another medium. So what is it today? Best adapted screenplay. Yeah, right. And it could be anything. Um, So these nominations for adapted mediums, Mm -hmm. um, they give the awards to not only the screenwriters, but also the writers of the previous medium. Oh, my. So, for example, this year, Pierre Boulet wrote the book, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and because he was the author of the book, he was nominated for an Oscar. So that's one example, but another person who also would have been nominated for the Oscar was Reginald Rose, who wrote the teleplay, 12 Angry Men, that the movie was then based on, Hmm. or the novelist, Charles Shaw, who wrote the novel Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, along with screenwriters John Lee Mahan and John Huston. Interesting. So, like, not only are the screenwriters getting nominated, but also the person who created the original work. That is very strange, and I'm sure that went away pretty quick. Yes. Um, the other strange thing that happens within this category, of course, is we are still in the the end phase of the Red Scare and of writers, of directors, of people being blacklisted in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So the actual writers of The Bridge on the River Kwai were Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, who were blacklisted at the time. So they did not receive any credit for their work. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wrote the adapted screenplay, but unfortunately, they were not given Oscars for their work. And only Pierre Boulet received an Oscar for this adapted screenplay. And (laughs) Pierre Houlet did not speak English. Yeah. He only spoke French. He wrote the book in French, and then his contributions were only in the French language. Mm -hmm. He had no contributions to the actual English writing of the script. And he holds the record for the shortest acceptance speech in Oscar history. Because he couldn't speak English. So he simply went up to the microphone and said, merci, and left. Oh, boy. (laughs) What a mess. Thankfully, uh, Foreman and Wilson were both acknowledged for their work by the Academy in 1984 and given their Oscars then. It was uh, posthumously uh, um, for that they received the Oscars. Only Foreman was alive. He died literally the day after they decided to do this. Yes, unfortunately. Um, So some other interesting things happened this year outside of the changes in the categories. Peyton Place, one of the films nominated, tied the record for the most nominations without a win that was previously set by The Little Foxes in 1941. Womp womp. Yeah, so they are nominated for nine categories and win nothing. Yikes. This record would actually stand until 1977 when the film The Turning Point received 11 nominations without a win, which which is still the record for right now. Um, The Color Purple also tied this record in 1985. 11 nominations, no wins. Yeah, that is just so many to be nominated for without winning. 
Yeah, I just don't understand how it happens. And like, we've talked about the politics around these things a little bit and like the ways in which you can campaign. And like, you know, just because you have the nominations doesn't mean anything. Well, and looking at Peyton Place's nominations, they had four nominations for supporting actor and actress. Right. Which, Which, as we've talked about... Throughout history, if you have multiple nominations in the same category, it's likely that you will not win either. Yes, you're competing against yourself. Anyways, that happens again this year. Um, Peyton Place, uh, as you were just kind of saying, they set the record for the most unsuccessful acting nominations at the time with five. This record will be tied one more time with Tom Jones at the 36th Academy Awards in a few years. Nice. Yeah, so... Not awesome for Peyton Place. (laughs) Uh, This is the first time that all five Best Picture nominations were also nominated for Best Director. Yeah, I saw that. Very interesting. And interesting that this is the first time it happened. Yeah, for all of them, that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this is pretty commonplace now. It's kind of expected that those things go hand in hand today, but... Well, and it is easier when the category is bigger. Right now, it's only five for Best Picture. Yeah. And it's always been five for Best Director and Mm -hmm. still is. But now more than five can be nominated for Best Picture. Right. So it's not possible. But this is the first time that happens. The film Designing Woman is the last film to win Best Original Screenplay for only being nominated in that one category. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the only nomination it got. Um, And it won. And it won. Wow. Yeah. Which was something that has happened previously where films get nominated in one category and win Mm -hmm. but that's not something that happens going forward such as grand hotel which (laughs) only got nominated for best picture and won i mean of all the ones to win yeah that's it (laughs) the final thing that i want to highlight about this ceremony is uh academy award winning actress miyoshi umeki becomes the first asian performer to win an academy award for acting huzzah um so she is in the film sayonara And she's pretty good in it, but she had a pretty extensive career outside of this film. And so I think that that kind of feeds into her ability to impress the Academy with her performance and win. Mm -hmm. Um, So just a little bit about her before I kind of wrap up. She was a Japanese actress who was famous in Japan for singing uh, jazz standards, both in Japanese and in English. Interesting. So she was a great singer. She had a bunch of uh, records out. And when she moved to America, she became a series regular on the TV show, Arthur Godfrey Talent Scouts, which was like a singing competition like a variety show yeah exactly Hmm. um and because of that she was signed with mercury records and because she was on this tv show she was seen by joshua logan who cast her in sayonara huh interesting she becomes a film actress she's able to do some of her singing and she wins the academy award for supporting actor she also becomes a Tony-nominated actress for originating the role of Mei Li in Flower Drum Song in 1958. So right after this, she goes straight from Sayonara to doing Flower Drum Song. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she uh, reprised the role in the film adaption as well. Mm. She is one of the first Asian actresses to be nominated for a Tony Award as well. And I just want to point this out for reference that the first Asian performer to win a Tony doesn't happen until 1988. Oh my gosh. When David Henry Huang wins for M. Butterfly. Oh my gosh. The first Asian woman performer to win is Leah Salonga for Miss Saigon in 1991. Wow. So anyways, just wanted to kind of put that out there for context. And uh, one other thing to note for her career is that she also is nominated for a Golden Globe for her series regular role on The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Hmm. 
Nice. I also think it's important to point out that the next Asian woman to win an Academy Award for performance is Yoon Yoon Jun for Minari in 2020. Wow. So we go from 1957, well, 58 is when the award ceremony happens, yeah. till 2020. That's crazy. All right, just let that sit. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what I have to share about this uh, ceremony today. Um, so before I wrap it up, let's uh, go through some of our winners for this year. Do it. So uh, the winner for Best Motion Picture goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai, Sam Spiegel, the producer. Best Director goes to David Lean for The Bridge on the River Kwai. Best Actor goes to Alec Guinness for The Bridge on the River Kwai. Best Actress goes to Joanne Woodward for The Three Faces of Eve. Best Supporting Actor goes to Red Buttons, which is the most ridiculous name for his uh, role in Sayonara as Airman Joe Kelly. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that like scratches my brain a little bit because his name is not Red Buttons. It's Red and his last name is Buttons. I mean, it's his like stage name i know i just it just okay (laughs) anyways he was fine actor this is not about him it's just his name that bothers me okay uh best supporting actress of course goes to miyoshi umeki from sayonara as kasumi kelly for the first time best story and screenplay written directly for the screen Mm -hmm. aka best original screenplay goes to designing woman george wells And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Bridge on the River Kwai. At the time, it went to Pierre Boulet based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. And now it is credited officially. It went to Michael Wilson, Carl Foreman, and Pierre Boulet. Boy. Best foreign language film goes to Knights of Kabira from Italy. Best documentary feature goes to Albert Schweitzer. Best live action short subject goes to The Wetback Hound. Best short subject cartoons goes to Birds Anonymous. Hmm. (laughs) Best scoring goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai, Malcolm Arnold. Best song goes to All the Way from The Joker is Wild by Jimmy Van Heusen, lyrics by Sammy Kahn. Best sound recording goes to Sayonara, George Groves. Best costume design goes to Les Girls, Ori Kelly. Best art direction goes to Sayonara, Ted Hayworth, set direction Robert Priestley. Best Cinematography goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai, Jack Hildyard. Best Film Editing goes to The Bridge on the River Kwai, Peter Taylor. And finally, Best Special Effects goes to The Enemy Below, Walter Rossi. Nice. And of course, there are a couple of honorary awards given out this year. Of course. Um, so there's one given to Charles Brackett, who is a novelist, screenwriter, producer for, quote, outstanding service to the Academy. And I just wanted to make note, we spoke about him before. He was the one that Billy Wilder drove back to drinking, <laughs> if you remember this. And why he wanted to make movies suddenly about alcoholism because he was so confused why his friend was going back to drinking after working with him. Well, anyways, another award is given to B.B. Kahan for distinguished service to the motion picture industry. Another producer Hmm. there. Another award is given to Gilbert M. Anderson, a.k.a. Bronco Billy for being a, quote, motion picture pioneer for his contributions to the development of motion pictures as entertainment, mostly Westerns, as you can tell by that name. Interesting. Uh, Director, writer, producer, etc. And finally, uh, an award is given to the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers for, quote, their contributions to the advancement of the motion picture industry. 
Yeah, there has been a lot of advancement as of late. Yes, especially within the last like five years. So yeah. pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and finally, the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award goes to Samuel Goldwyn. Hmm. And no Irving G. Thalberg Award. Not this year. Interesting. Not this year. They're becoming fewer and far between. Yeah. Well, all the big guys have gotten them now. Yeah. So I feel like they're kind of waiting for the next big producer to come out of the woodwork who doesn't already have one. Because as I talked about before, they're not doubling up on them anymore. Right. So that's what I have to share about uh, this Academy Award ceremony. It's a pretty interesting year. There are some really heavy hitters this year, as I mentioned. Um, of course, the Bridge and the River Kwai does really well. Um, also, Sayonara. Sayonara ends up having the most nominations out of all the pictures with 10, followed by Peyton Place with nine nominations, followed by The Bridge on the River Kwai with eight. Hmm. Other notable films that came out this year, Witness for the Prosecution, Funny Face, An Affair to Remember, just lots of really great films that are still recognized today yeah we're getting to a place where i feel like that's happening more and more every year where i'm like recognizing a lot of the names Mm -hmm. um whereas like in these first few years i didn't know any of the films yeah in the first few years there's a lot of films that like have never survived really yeah except for uh, little women (laughs) i always knew that one when it came around (laughs) Uh, all right well that's all i have to share so why don't we take a little break here and then when we come back you can tell us all about the bridge that is on the River Kwai. I shall. <laughs> and we're back. Time for the year 1957. Well, starting off with some births, debuts, and deaths, of course. <laughs> ah, it's been a while. Yeah, famous births this year. John Lasseter, oh. Steve Harvey, Jennifer Lewis, LeVar Burton, Ray Winston, John Turturro, Spike Lee, Paul Reiser, Daniel Day-Lewis, Richard Grant, Judge Reinhold, Ted Levine, Francis McDormand, Cameron Crowe, Daniel Stern, Hans Zimmer, Ethan Cohen, Brad Bird, Fran Drescher, Bernie Mac, Dolph Lundgren, Michael Clark Duncan, Steve Buscemi, and Ray Romano. Wow. Wow. Lots of people who are like the golden actors of Hollywood now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's just so fun to realize how this... All works time-wise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some big debuts this year. Alan Arkin. Oh, wow. Are you serious? He's, He's been so in the game old. a long time. <laughs> Andy Griffith, George Peppard, Harry Dean Stanton, Liv Ullman, and Adam West. Nice. Some deaths this year, some sad ones. We have Gene Lockhart, Eric Vron Stroheim, James Whale, who was sort of one of the fathers of uh, horror films. Oh, uh, well. He made lots of the first, like, monster horrors. Aww. Yeah, we don't ever get to talk about those on here. Oliver Hardy of Laurel and Hardy. Hmm. Then, Louis B. Mayer. No! And Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> oh. The Golden Agers are yeah. biting the dust. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've been in the industry since the 20s, so, yeah. you know, it's about time, but doesn't make it any less sad. And Humphrey Bogart was actually pretty young. Was he was say, only 57. Not, yeah, he's not that old. He yeah, was he doing had films. pretty severe cancer. Also, he was a major alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure his liver croaked. Yeah, people didn't really know about uh, health things back then. Yeah. They're like, oh, well, if you're not feeling great, have a cigarette and a little whiskey and see how we feel in the morning. 
So some things happening in the film world in 1957. The death of RKO. Ooh, boy. Wow. The first sort of uh, major, major to bite it. So in 1948, um, we're going back a couple years, producer Howard Hughes started his takeover of RKO. Um, He slowly began purchasing shares from other shareholders until by the end of 54, he was the sole shareholder of RKO, making him the first person to solely own a studio since the like beginning days of Hollywood. Mm. He'd spent about $23.5 million overall to acquire all of the company, basically. Um, by mid-1955, he ended up turning around and selling RKO to General Tire and Rubber oh boy. for $25 million. So this was great for him. Uh-huh. Um, General Tire had spent the last decade gobbling up a bunch of broadcasting, both TV and radio stations, to form an entertainment conglomerate. Oh my gosh. This is something that I don't understand because it's something that still happens today with like General Electric and like yeah. other companies like that. They just that... want to like buy a thing yeah. to like diversify their portfolio. Yeah. It's so strange. It's so scary. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the only good thing that General Tire did was selling off a bunch of TV rights to most of RKO's features. Mm. The biggest one of these was Citizen Kane which then got to play on TV for the first time in 1956, which sort of reinvigorated interest in it. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit back when we talked about Citizen Kane. Yeah, listen to the uh, 14th Academy Awards (laughs) when we discuss Citizen Kane, and Um, it's losing to How Green Was My Valley. (laughs) Unfortunately, a handful of flops made in 1956 started to tank the studio, as well as pretty much the rest of any company that was using them for distribution. Oh, um, yeah. And they had lost a lot of their partners in distribution, especially Disney, um, in the previous decade to this. Right, yes. Um, so they decided to completely shut down their domestic distribution wing in February of 1957. And General Tire realized that they were not so keen on owning RKO anymore. So they decided to also just shut down all production through RKO and started selling off the studio lots that they owned. Uh, That's why you can't trust people who are in the arts industry to run your company. That's why United Artists is so awesome because it's like (laughs) a bunch of artists who are like, no, we know what we want to do. We're going to make it work. And the business people are like, I'm not so sure. (laughs) So their Hollywood and their Culver City locations were both sold to Desilu Productions, of course, owned by Lucille Ball and Desi oh, Arnaz, <laughs> um, nice. later that year in 1957 for $6.15 million, signifying the end of one of the major studios of the Hollywood Golden Age. Yeah. R.I.P. Also in 57, um, Ingmar Bergman, we have not really gotten to talk about him, mm. and he's not really beloved by the Academy for some reason, but probably the greatest Swedish filmmaker of all time. He, in May of 1957, wins the special jury prize at Cannes for The Seventh Seal, Mm, one mm -hmm. of the best films of all time, of course. And in December of that same year, released Wild Strawberries, which would go on to win The Golden Bear at the 8th Berlin International Film Festival in 59. Mm -hmm. So this is like his heyday right now. Mm. Yeah, we don't get to talk about him like at all. Yeah, so... A big year for him. After two years of not being in the motion picture uh, alliance, United Artists decides to rejoin 
of course, they decided to quit that, the MPAA, <laughs> when they did not receive the seal of approval from the code for the man with the golden arm. This comes after an expansion of the MPAA code appeals board members and some more code changes being made in 56 and 57. They're spinning out. Yeah. So these changes that were made allowed the use of narcotics, talk of abortion, and mixed race couples, quote, within the limits of good taste. (laughs) These things always just crack me up because I wonder how they sit around and like vote like, all right, narcotics, yes. Abortion, yes. Interracial marriage, mm, okay, sure. Yeah. And I mean, we've gone on and on about the code, but it's just... (laughs) Absurd. What? Truly nonsense. Yeah. Um, they did grow stricter on a few things. <laughs> okay. Depictions of blasphemy and mercy killings. <laughs> mercy killings? Yeah. So you can't show a mercy killing. Correct. What is an example of that? Like a mercy killing? Of mice of- and men. Oh, interesting. So this includes animals and... So like Old Yeller would not have... Funny enough, <laughs> Old Yeller came out this year and it was the fifth best-selling film of the year. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so. But also like the yearling. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where they uh-huh. have to kill the deer at the end. Yeah. Boy. Interesting. Well, I hate mercy killings because they make me very sad. So I wouldn't have minded not seeing those films as a kid. It like kills me that people have to like put down animals and stuff like that. Well, Disney was quick to get old Yeller out under the gun. <laughs> under the gun. Pun intended. Oh, gosh. Uh, The last thing I'll mention about this year um, is that both Cinderella and Bambi had their first re-releases in theaters. Aww. Also this year is the 12th Tony Awards. Sunrise at Campobello is the winner for best play. And The Music Man (laughs) is the winner for best musical, Uh beating West Side Story. (gasps) Whoa. I did not know they were the same year. Yeah. What? How did that beat West Side Story? Yeah, it's hard to believe. Mm. Um, The other ones that it beat that came out that same year were New Girl in Town, Oh Captain, and Jamaica. Who cares? Yeah. But wow. I mean, that's some stiff competition for sure, but I'm very surprised by that. West Side Story did take uh, Best Choreography. Well, duh. Sorry, I said that so aggressively. (laughs) I just can't believe that. Wow. Did any of the performers win? For West Side Story? Yeah. I know this isn't a Tony's podcast, but I'm flabbergasted. They did not. None of them were even nominated. Boo. Boo. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I love The Music Man. Also, another one of the greatest musicals of all time. Well, and then I just wanted to mention that Helen Hayes, of course, wins another Tony uh, for Time Remembered. All right. And then Thelma Ritter actually tied with Gwen Verdon. Um, both in New Girl in Town for Distinguished Musical Actress. Interesting. Yeah. Congrats to her, I guess. And also, this was the 10th year of Emmy Awards. Okay. Decade of things now. Yep. Nothing too exciting happening at that one, but they've been going on for 10 years now. Yeah. So on to the film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. This film had a budget of $2.8 and it grossed about $30 in its first year. And it was the highest grossing film of 1957. Okay, nice. I'm kind of surprised by that considering how long and boring it is, but I guess it was compelling. Well, the second highest was Peyton Place. Boy, poor Peyton Place. Yeah. (laughs) I've never seen that movie, but I kind of want to see it now because, man, that just stinks. And third was Sayonara. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, fifth was Old Yeller. (laughs) 
<laughs> a little history lesson about this film, because it is sort of based on historical things, but also not. So in early 1942, Japan invaded Burma, which is now known as Myanmar, and took control of it from the UK. Since the only true way to continue getting more supplies and troops was from the sea, they were prone to attacks from the US and UK and Australian ships and subs that were posted in the Pacific, <laughs> especially following the Japanese defeat in the Battle of Midway, which happened in June of 1942. They wanted to avoid the long sea voyage around the entire Malay Peninsula to get all the way around the other side of it to Burma. So they decided to build a railway which would connect Bangkok in Siam, now known as Thailand, and Rangoon in Burma. So 69 miles of tracks in Burma and 189 in Thailand. Um, they enslaved a lot of Burmese and Siamese locals, as well as many prisoners of war from allied countries, mainly from Australia, America, the Netherlands, the UK, and France. Construction in Myanmar began in September of 1942 and in Thailand in November of that year. The whole railway was completed ahead of schedule in October of 1943. POW camps, or as they were uh, called then by the Japanese, construction camps, were built to house the workers. They were built every 5 to 10 miles along the path of the railroad, and each one housed around 1,000 prisoners. The Australian government um, kept the most track of what was going on there at the time because they were sort of closest to the action, and their soldiers were the first to be captured and forced to work on the railroad. Um, they claimed that nearly 330,000 people were forced to work on the project, hmm. about 250,000 Asian locals, and around 61,000 POWs. Wow. It's a very interesting historical point that I've never really heard of outside of this movie. Yeah. Nearly 90,000 Asian locals and 16,000 POWs died in the year it took to complete the railroad. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Um, after completion, most of the POWs were transported to mainland Japan, while some were kept in Myanmar and Thailand to maintain the railroad. Um, the POWs wouldn't see freedom yet for another two years, basically when the war ended. Mm -hmm. um, and the railroad would become to known as the Death Railway. Yeah, wow. Huh. Of course, one of the most important builds along the railway was Bridge 277, or as we know it today, the Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm. It spanned the Mae Klong River, actually. Oh, this river deceptive. Yes. This river flowed through the Kuei Noi Valley in Thailand, which basically translates to river small. Kuei ended up being mispronounced by English speakers as Kwai. Oh, oh no. I'm sorry, everyone. I've been saying Kwai this whole episode. Well, that's the way it's pronounced now. Okay. Because okay. of this, in 1960, because of miscommunication disputes between fact and fiction and the popularity of the novel and the movie, the part of the river that the bridge spans was renamed Kuei Yai, or Big Tributary. And basically, they said, call it the River Kwai. But it's weird that this thing named the river now. Huh. Yeah, that is weird. So now the river is known as the River Kwai, mm -hmm. not the Mae Klong. Interesting. Uh, the wooden bridge, similar to the one seen in the film, was completed in February of 1943, and a more permanent steel and concrete one was completed just next to it in June of 1943. Uh, both ended up being destroyed by Allied bombers in 1945. 
Mm. So that is the real story. Okay. Not nearly as cinematic. Uh, Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) So the novel was called The Bridge Over the River Kwai, actually. That's what the original French title translates to. And that was written by Pierre Boulet, as we talked about, and published in French in 1952. It was translated to English by Zan Fielding and published in English in 1954. Boulet spent time as a POW on plantations in Southeast Asia for a short time, but also worked with Allied forces in the jungles of Southeast Asia during the war. Mm. So he actually escaped in 1944 and spent the last year of his time with a commando group in Southeast Asia. Hmm. Um, He said that the novel was based on his time, as well as other stories he'd heard told about the construction of the death railway from other POWs and some of his experiences with French officers during the war. In the novel, he chose to make them British officers for some reason. Hmm. I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, The novel, of course, was an instant bestseller in both France and America, among other countries, so naturally, Hollywood wanted to adapt it. (laughs) The film marked a growing relationship between Hollywood and the British film industry. Um, Up until this point, most British films were pretty just like satirical comedies, mostly upper class, kind of stuffy, drawing room type stuff. Sure. Mostly because of Noel Coward. Yes. (laughs) Um, This film marked a future trend in Hollywood-funded British blockbusters, many to be directed by David Lean, actually after his success with this film. Oh, okay. Carl Foreman was actually the first person who optioned the script, hoping to write and produce a purely British-made film with director Zoltan Korda. Korda's brother criticized the script for being very anti-British and convinced his brother to drop out, forcing Foreman to reach out to Spiegel to try to recoup some of his money. Of course, he is in England because he is blacklisted. (laughs) Foreman, that is. Lean became involved because the screenwriter of his recent Summertime film from 1955 started working on rewrites with Foreman, but Spiegel was very unimpressed. Um, Lean, who was now involved, was unhappy with then the next writer who Spiegel brought in, so he and Spiegel agreed on Michael Wilson to join the team. Hmm. The other two writers failed to receive any credits, so it's believed that none of their contributions were kept in the final script. Gotcha. Once a script was completed in secret by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson who, of course, were both blacklisted, it was decided that Boulay would be given credit to hide the identity of theirs, Mm -hmm. Um, even though, of course, as you mentioned, he spoke no English. (laughs) Yeah, how is that credible? Like, who thought that was cool and fine? I mean, all they had to do was trick the American government. Do you think all of Hollywood knew? Probably. This is just such an interesting time to me where it's like people are so desperate to keep writing movies that they do it in secret like this. I just, that gets me. Yeah. It's really emotional. And I'm happy that they were able to get it made still. Well, and it's funny because he was free, Foreman was free to make whatever he wanted in any other country. So he was just going to make this film as a British film. Like. Lean was not the first choice for director. Spiegel felt bound to him because of his early involvement in the script. Mm. John Ford, William Wyler, Fred Zinneman, and Orson Welles all had meetings with Spiegel to discuss the future of the film. He eventually went with Lean. Welles was even discussed for directing and then starring in it. Oh my gosh, of course, that's what he wanted to do. (laughs) Ah, the man. Um, Up to this point, Lean was most famous for his adaptations of both Noel Coward... He made four of them. (laughs) And Charles Dickens, Great Expectations, and Oliver Twist. So very, very British. Yeah. Uh, He had just come from making his first joint effort with Hollywood, the Audrey Hepburn-led Summertime. Mm. 
Charles Loughton was actually supposed to have the role of Colonel Nicholson. Oh. Um, and it was even announced to the press that he was being cast, but because of recent weight gain, which led to some poor health of his, oh. um, he was unable to take the part. Um, Lean and Guinness did not get along at all during the film, and oh. Lean frequently told him on set that he wished he had not been cast, oh. and that many other actors would have played the part way better. They also fought about the interpretation of the character constantly. Was it like interpretation stuff, or was it like ego, or they were bad people? Or it like... seemed all of it. Oh, like, man. and one of the main things was that Lean thought the character should just be a boring, stuffy British guy, and Aww. then. Guinness thought that he should be like he was in the movie. Yeah. Um, and he kind of won out in the end. Yeah. I mean, I feel like his interpretation is really interesting, at least now looking at it. Yeah, because it's a little like humorous and mm-hmm. it's kind of also stuffy. And he's also a more personable character than many generals that you run across in these like war films at the time yeah so then william holden uh who played shears he got one of the best deals in hollywood history for the role up to this point he worked out a deal for a million dollars and 10 percent of the profit so he often had the 10 percent clause in his contract but rarely was due the amount of payout as he would receive for this film because not all of his films were like the best-selling films of the totally. year. Totally. Well, and I feel like actors can get away with that when they're making like not the be- like biggest films when they're yeah. Not he's huge making stars. a bunch of like kind of westerns, mm-hmm. and so it uh-huh. worked for him for that. So it <laughs> ended up though working out really well for Columbia because he also had a clause in his contract that he didn't receive more than fifty thousand dollars a year from any one project. Oh, so they didn't have to pay him out right away. Right, which is interesting. I'm guessing he did that for like his own personal security in yeah, a way. Yeah, probably. So Columbia, after the first year, was due to pay him an additional $2.5 million because oh, of the profits, yeah. <laughs> um, but only in $50,000 increments. Um, because of that, the payout to him would take several decades. Wow. And in the meantime, they decided to hold his money as an investment which oh. then made them like yeah, profitable. Close to 3 million more dollars just yeah. holding his money waiting to pay him. Interesting, interesting. Well, and I mean, I guess it makes sense if like you're trying to like protect yourself for the long term and not have to get taxed on all that money right away. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that helped Columbia stay afloat for a while too. Yeah, cuz then they had a bunch of free money that they can invest. Yeah. The film was almost exclusively shot on location in Sri Lanka, which at the time was uh, called Ceylon. Oh, okay. um, Near the Kalani River. Some really weird thing, and this makes sense when you hear it, but really (laughs) weird. Columbia threatened to stop production three weeks in when they realized there were no white women in the film. Okay. The scenes with actress Anne Sears as the nurse were added because the producers were worried that the film wouldn't sell without a white woman being in it. Oh, damn it. <laughs> um, well, that makes a lot of sense because why those, those dumb scenes, scenes are in seems so tacked on. Like, yeah. They're useless. Sears and director David Lean commented after the fact that they were horrible scenes <laughs> and that they like felt really horrible because they knew how unnecessary they were. I was literally thinking as we were sitting on the couch watching this movie when the scene comes on where she's in her bathing suit and they're sitting there chatting and then she gets up and runs into the ocean and they continue to have a conversation <laughs> in the background it's her like jumping up and down running in, into yep. the water and then she's just bouncing up and down i was like what is happening why are they objectifying her this way 
she had the same feeling. Oh, well, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> now we get to some of the crazy things that happened. Uh, David Lean almost drowned one afternoon while they were filming. As he was in the river, he walked into a strong current and was just like swept downstream <laughs> and almost drowned. Someone's like, wait, where's David? He was just here. <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. It just is tickling me the wrong way um when they filmed the paratroopers jumping out of the plane oh my gosh i can't imagine i thought that that shot was really amazing it was very cool and very scary to watch yeah so dp jack (gasps) hildyard strapped himself to the wing of the plane (gasps) and was holding on to a handheld 16 millimeter so that he could get that shot are you serious yeah he was like i gotta get it oh my gosh why are cinematographers like that (laughs) Oh my goodness, that is terrifying. And then to the bridge. So the real life wooden bridge uh, was completed in two months by the POWs. For the filming, the bridge that was used took almost eight months, completed by a construction crew of nearly 500 people and 35 elephants to help haul materials through the thick jungles. It cost about 85,000 pounds or adjusting with inflation and currency, about $3 million today. Mm. Just for that one set. Spiegel specifically purchased an older train from the Sri Lankan government that was similar to what the Japanese would have used a decade earlier so that it could be destroyed. (laughs) Um, Then they set the date to film the bridge exploding so that the prime minister of Sri Lanka could be in attendance as well as other government officials who were interested in watching. (laughs) Like, hey, we're going to blow some stuff up. Would you be interested in joining? And I was like, oh, heck Yeah. So, unfortunately, Freddie Ford, who was one of the camera operators, couldn't get out of the way in time, and the detonation had to be aborted the first time they tried this. Unfortunately, there was no failsafe for the train, so it just crashed into a generator sitting on the tracks on the other side of the bridge because it was not supposed to go across the bridge. Like, it's supposed to, like, fall into the water. Oh, man. (laughs) So, why did they have the failsafe set up for half of it? And not the whole Well, situation. the failsafe was just not detonate. Yeah. I mean, you I, can always not detonate. I know, but I'm saying like, <laughs> if they're like, hmm, we should make sure that in case someone like is in the way and like trapped oh, on the railroad track. You know that they were not thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is Hollywood, baby. Uh, so they ended up working all through the rest of the day and all through that night repairing the damages to the train so that they could film the next morning still with the prime minister and the government officials in attendance so that they could witness. (laughs) And of course it went off fine. I mean, they only really needed the one take of it from multiple angles and that is what's in the film. Nice. A fun afternoon with the boys. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the story of this film. It is what it is. Yeah. It's a good film. If you're going to watch like an Academy war film, this is definitely one to watch. Yeah, definitely. It's a, a Ron Swanson approved film. Yeah, one of his favorites, apparently. <laughs> if you like Parks and Rec and you like Ron Swanson and you feel kindred, maybe you'll like that. Well, and it feels like one he would really like. <laughs> <laughs> like it makes sense. Yeah, all about your personal code and doing the right thing even when you're in hard circumstances, blah, blah, blah. One thing that's really interesting in reading about this film is... The critical attention that it got the most was that people were worried that it was anti-British, which seems really strange to me because it seems very pro-British. What is the perspective on that? I don't really understand. Like, Hmm. 
there's not explanations for it. It was just something that people were worried about. Maybe that the British at the time were working with the Japanese. I don't know. Sure. The other criticism is from Japanese people that they are seen as inept engineers, which... Oh, yeah. Obviously, they're not. They're definitely not. Yeah, that's Um, correct. And the British are not known for being the greatest engineers in the world. Also, race has nothing to do with math skills. So, like, (laughs) (laughs) there's that. Yeah. Interesting. Um. And then the other like major criticism of both the book and the film is that they were never shown the prisoners being treated very harshly, like in actuality compared to how they were treated in real life. Gotcha. They kind of just talk about it and like you assume, I think, when you're watching it. Well, and they were just like tortured so senselessly Mm. for, I mean, all through the time that they were prisoners and while they were making there was a stretch of the track that is most notorious for the most people who died in Mm -hmm. one like section of track Mm -hmm. and it was just a really dangerous area where they were blowing up a lot of rocks so a lot of people died from that it not being very safe conditions but also that during that time within like a week span I think like 70 people were beaten to death oh wow wow in that one like stretch so ugly yeah so that is the other criticism and of course like i don't know you're not gonna put that in a film really yeah and at this point in time i think what hollywood is trying to do especially with the film sayonara as well is sort of mend these relationships that now post-war don't need to be antagonistic sure Mm -hmm. and i don't know how successful they are but there is an effort being put forward there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we were talking about this conversation a little bit. Um, we watched Sayonara in order to prepare for this um, because like it's also highly nominated, has a lot of interesting things. Marlon Brando, when you know how I feel about his work and, you know, that kind of thing. He plays the dopiest role he's ever played in it, by the way. Yeah. That's besides the point, though. From a modern perspective, looking back on both this film and Sayonara, It's interesting to see the way the effort was being made. Like I can tell that from a cultural standpoint, it's very progressive, but it does feel reductive now. And it feels Mm -hmm. like it it fetishizes Japanese women and it makes the culture seem exotic and mysterious and very other than. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, from our perspective now, that isn't the way to talk about other cultures um, Mm -hmm. with respect. Um, So, yeah, it's a very interesting time because, like, you can tell that they are doing something that is probably publicly not acceptable. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned the othering because I think that is one of the main things that I was thinking about watching these films is that they still make the different nationalities feel extremely different they want you to know that these are very different yeah and that japanese people and british people specifically in bridge on the river kwai are so different from each other yeah and it's sort of celebrating differentness but it doesn't allow you to at least as an american it doesn't really allow you to sympathize with either of them Mm -hmm. whereas when you compare a film that is more about a different ethnic group and their life today, like Minari, for instance, it doesn't feel othering to watch that film today as a modern American. Mm -hmm. Because, 
I mean, specifically that film takes place in America, but also it's so much more about the human experience and how their experience as uh, an Asian American family is in Mm -hmm. Arkansas in that time period. And it brings you into that experience as somebody who is not an Asian American person and allows you to see through their eyes what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And these films, even though they're about other people's experiences, they don't allow you to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that another thing that films are doing at this time in history is they're showing the world because the world is so far away to the simple American, like the Midwest American, the simple family American. Like Mm -hmm. those people aren't traveling to these places and getting to be with people from other countries and cultures and things like that. And so like, I think about like our previous winter around the world in 80 days, which showcases all these grand, like huge, like spectacles of different cultures. Um, and even the 10 commandments is very similar where they're like showcasing like all these crazy displays of Egyptian stuff and Jewish stuff. And like, I think that there's a little bit of an ineptitude Mm -hmm. in that. Um, and the same thing is happening with this showcase of Japanese culture, it doesn't necessarily celebrate it. It more so is like... It's just putting it on display. Yeah, yeah. And like taking. It's not Mm -hmm. celebrating. It's like consuming that culture for yourself and like getting entertainment value out of it, um, which from a a modern sensibility is not a great way to enjoy other cultures. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people understood that as well. Mm -hmm. especially when those cultures are not the ones creating the form of entertainment sure it would be one thing if it was a japanese movie putting japanese people on display for the purpose of saying we're putting ourselves on display for you yeah it's different when it's not that it's an interesting time and you know american relationships with the world are not mended entirely yet so Hmm. We're still, you know, figuring all of that out post-World War II. And, of course, there's a lot going on in America at the same time. We've got the start of the civil rights movement happening and Mm -hmm. all kinds of cultural revolutions happening at home that are also centered around othering people. Yeah. Um, So it's a pretty big theme that is not explored totally properly yet. Well. (laughs) I think that's good. (laughs) At the end of every episode, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film these actors, this episode, what would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? I would, uh, the first thing I would like to thank the Academy for is uh, film history as told by Donald Duck. (gasps) Because (laughs) I have greatly enjoyed learning about film history and I can only imagine how much more riveting it would be learning about it from an angry marble-mouthed duck. Great. <laughs> and I appreciate the collaboration between Disney and uh, the Academy Awards still. He likes to keep them on his good side. Oh, yeah, big time. I would like to give thanks to long-lost RKO Radio Pictures. Mm, one of the real reels. The first major major to go down. They did a lot of good for Hollywood in the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of good things distributed a lot of good films yeah had one winner only i think they uh were not too close with the academy unfortunately yeah but it was a good run a good run (laughs) i would like to thank the academy for 
the origins of one of my heroes, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh. <laughs> Alec Guinness. <laughs> I know this is not his actual origin, but this is the like youngest I've ever seen him. Well, and it did propel him more to like international fame. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, great British stage actor, mm-hmm. great Shakespearean actor, mm-hmm. um, great space actor. So... <laughs> <laughs> He can do it all. He can do it all. <laughs> I would like to give another thanks to Carl Foreman, mm-hmm. screenwriter, who, despite his horrible circumstances, uh, is just like, yeah, I'm still making art. I want to make things. I want to buy things and create stories from them and yeah. still doing it, despite uh, the American government not enjoying his ideas. <laughs> Yeah, you got to stick with it if that's what you love. Yeah, good for you, Foreman. (laughs) I do have one final thank the Academy. All right. I would like to thank the Academy for Academy Award winning Hangs with the Boys to Blow Things Up. Like the end of the bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, boy. Call up all your best buds and uh, explode some stuff. Mm -hmm. The um, Prime Minister of Ceylon at the time, he's somebody who's kind of known in history as just kind of a strange person. Um, He's known as the Silver Bell of Asia. He was the fourth prime minister of the Dominion of Ceylon. Uh, He is commonly known as SWRD Bandaranaiki. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Sorry. But SWRD because his name was Solomon West Ridgeway Dias. Oh, my gosh. None of that is good. Yeah. It's a really (laughs) long acronym to call someone by. Hey, SDRW. What was it? I don't remember. SWRD. <laughs> hey, SWRD. What's up? <laughs> the Silver Bell of Asia. An interesting guy if you want to look up stuff about him. He was also assassinated. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that's all we've got for today. <laughs> Thanks for joining with us and uh, sitting around while we uh, talk about these films and the times and we're learning a lot as we go through this stuff and it's been really great to engage with these movies and the cultural stuff going on so thanks for uh, allowing us to keep doing that and it's great to engage with our listeners yeah thanks for listening thanks for sticking with us through the break i know that it's hard to like remember that we even exist sometimes oh but boy here we are <laughs> well no one could forget about penny that's true they keep coming back for her well from now on we are back yep we are releasing episodes every thursday mm-hmm. so find us wherever you listen to your podcasts yeah follow us on instagram and facebook and twitter and tiktok and all the places wow yeah we're there you can connect with us always creating content <laughs> Yeah, and join us next week for a new Academy Archives episode. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.